Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight, so open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, then follow along with somebody. Acts chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. <clears throat> it's going to be fun tonight, I think. All right, here we go. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going I'm to read to you what happens, and we're going to explain it. We're going to dig in and see what happens, all right? Chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the, the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So here's, here's what's happening. Peter and John, uh, two of the disciples, they're walking up to the temple. It's about 3 p.m., which was one of the hours of prayer uh, during that time. And, and so there are, uh, there's a bunch of other people going up to the temple at the same time. And uh, there's this, this guy that had been lame, as the Bible says, or crippled uh, since birth, who had been taken to be set at the gate called Beautiful Gate. I guess it was pretty or something. Uh, set at this beautiful gate, and, uh, and he would beg for money. Um, you know, I guess he sees all these religious people walking by. He's thinking, hey, I'll get some money. This will be good. It'll help me in my situation. And so most of the time, what would probably happen is the people walking by, if they noticed him at all, wouldn't really look at him. They might find some loose change in their pockets and like drop it in his cup as they went by, but they wouldn't really pay attention to this guy. They wouldn't, they wouldn't make eye contact or anything like that. What we see happens with Peter and John is they notice this guy, which, which that's a big deal. They, they notice this crippled guy sitting there and, and, and they stop and it says they fixed their gaze on them, which kind of sounds weird. I, I, I kind of, I, I imagine like Peter, you know, not just like looking, but like, you know, gazing into his eyes. And he says, look at me. Uh, and, and so he, he, he not only looks at him, uh, Peter and John, but, but they look at him and say, look at us. And you think about this, people who are in this guy's situation, crippled, uh, he's been outcast his whole life, he's poor, he probably doesn't make a whole lot of eye contact with people. And, and so for Peter and John to say, look me in the eyes was shocking. And, and this guy, he's expecting them uh, to give them money. Now, uh, let me just kind of explain really what's happening here. In this crippled guy's request for money from Peter and John, you see, I think, one of the typical male responses to personal pain and suffering. Now, let me explain this, okay? Uh, we respond, guys and girls, we respond to pain and suffering in different ways. And, and there's a few types of pain and suffering, physical pain and suffering, uh, emotional pain and suffering, and spiritual pain and suffering. And we all respond differently, and I would say that there's some pretty big differences between how guys and girls uh, respond to physical, emotional, and spiritual pain and suffering. So like physical pain and suffering, uh, guys and girls respond differently. Let me, let me kind of explain or do my best to explain here. Guys, uh, we do a couple things. We, uh, one, we, we try to act like it's not really a big deal. Like, I'll give you an example. Last night, I'm, I'm playing softball, uh, and one of the guys on our team, he's running to third base. Somebody tries to throw him out from, from center field, and the ball comes like full speed, line drive, and just nails him in, in the back of his calf muscle, which uh, a hard object hitting you in the calf muscle going however many miles an hour, that, that's not cool. It, it hurts. So he, he gets on the base, and <clears throat> he uh, immediately gets up, and he's kind of you know, doing this whole thing, but he's, he's like, no, nah, I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. And he kind of quickly walks to the dugout, and he, you know, he gets quicker and quicker as he gets to the dugout, and he gets in there. It almost looks like he has to go to the bathroom. And he gets in there, and he gets to a place where he turns the corner, and he thinks he's out of sight you know, of everybody, but we can still see him. And as soon as he gets to that place and turns the corner, he's like, oh 
you know, he's like just wincing in pain and we start laughing at him because, you know, that's what guys do. That's, that's one of the things, like guys, when we see other guys in pain, girls don't do this, but when we see other guys in pain, we're like, bro, rub some dirt on it or something. And girls, girls are like, oh my gosh, what happened to you? And, and so like, this is another thing. When girls are around and guys are in pain, like they milk it for all it's worth. Like I had a friend in elementary school, uh, we would play football at recess and he would get hurt like every day, you know, and he'd fall and act like he hurt his foot. And, he, and he'd, he'd look up, look for where all the girls were, and he'd run over to where the girls were over by the swing set, and he'd fall and be like, oh, and the girls would be like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? I hope you're okay. And he'd get all the attention from the girls. So that's one of the ways that guys respond to pain. Another, another way is like we act like, um, you know, it's not a big deal, and we try to fix it ourselves. Another example of this would be, I had a buddy in college, and I, and I can't, I mean, I don't really know how to explain this whole story other than stupidly, he was trying to uh, kind of show us, I guess, this trick or something. I don't know how this is a trick, but he was going to uh, cut himself right here and, and like make it bleed in such a way that it looked really cool. I don't know where this came from. Uh, so he takes a he takes a razor sharp or a little razor blade, and uh, and I just don't, I don't do good with blood and guts and things like that, y'all. And so he starts to cut himself, and, and the whole plan was tiny little slit, lots of blood. Well, I'm telling you, as soon as that blade hits his chest, he went way too deep, and it just starts to open like like literally like that. And I'm standing there against the wall and literally it's one of those like blood goes straight from my head down to my legs. And I'm just like, oh man, you know? And, uh, and he's just like kind of giggling the whole time. And, and finally we're like, bro, that's, that is like, we got to take you to the hospital because it's like flapped open. You can see the muscle and stuff. He's like, no, it's cool, man. Just give me some glue and, and, and some tape and we'll tape it back together. Like that's how guys respond to physical pain. Now, now girls, I'm not going to try and go too much detail here, but I'll just say this, and guys, this might shock you, but I truly believe this. I really think that girls have a much higher pain tolerance than guys. And, um, I, you know, like, I'm not going to go detailed, but the whole, you know, pregnancy stuff and all those other things, which freak me out, but I just, I think they have a higher pain tolerance than us when it comes to physical pain and suffering. So guys and girls deal with that differently. There's also the emotional uh, pain and suffering. And, and you think about this, like our emotions, one of the first things that shows our emotions is our hands, right? Uh, I mean, I'll give you a few examples here. Like one is, like if you're really excited, uh, a lot of people do the whole, you know, fist pump, yes! Like everybody do that, yes! Oh, that was weak, everybody do that, yes! Okay, see like when you're really excited, you might do the fist pump. Or like you're watching a game or something and somebody scores and you're like, woo! You know, throw the hands up in the air. You know, your hands, you can't just, I mean, try to be excited and be like, woo! With their hands, it doesn't work. You gotta be like, woo! Or like, yes, something like that, you know? Really cool people might raise the roof or something, something like that, too. But like, if you're, um, if you're ticked off, uh, you, you, might, you might do the whole, oh, come on, are you serious? Like if you watched the Monday night football game last night. Uh, that was an interception, for sure, and they called it a touchdown. And so I'm sure a lot of people in the rooms, okay, some people, okay, we'll talk later after this, buddy. Uh, and I will show you the instant replay. It was definitely not a touchdown. But some people are sitting on their couch, those Packers fans, and like, oh, come on, you gotta be kidding me. And I guess other people are like, yes, you know, they're using their hands to show their emotion. Some of you girls, you might show your ticked off emotions through your hands by, uh, you, you know, you get mad at a, uh, your boyfriend, you're like, no, uh-uh. <laughs> and then you just kind of go from there. You do the little snap thing. And then there's some people who are like, I I'm, I'm really confused. And so you, this is the I'm confused emotion. Like, what? I don't even understand what's going on right now. And then there's like the uh, I'm listening to you, crossed arms. I'm listening to you, but I really don't want to be listening to you right now. Or some of you girls, you kind of do this thing where you put your hands like that. And you're like, I'm listening to you, but I, I you know. But when it comes to emotional pain and suffering, it, it comes out in our hands. And guys and girls are very different. Um, for guys, emotion comes quickly and it goes quickly. 
And for guys, the way that we display that in our hands is we start to clench our fists. This is why so many guys get in, in fights with each other because they, they get emotional and they're like, man, uh-uh, and they just like throw punches. But then like 10 minutes later, they're best buds because they got out what they needed to get out and it's, you know, it's over. Emotion comes quickly, it goes quickly. So you'll see guys, if they're emotionally going through pain and suffering or anguish, they, they quench, even talking about it, I'm like not even intentionally doing this, but you know, they get that white knuckle grip, they're like, whoa, you know? Uh, and, and then girls, <sighs> completely different. Um, like, I'm, I'm just going to try my best to explain this here. Uh, total observation. So you got like girl one, uh, girl two. Girls, you know, guys, emotion comes quick, goes quick. Girls, it's more like this little uh, calm, drizzly storm of rain that over time turns into this like boom, thunderstorm. <laughs> and so like it starts off, you know, girl one, girl two. Uh, girl one is kind of standing here. She looks distraught maybe. And girl two comes up and she, you know, does the whole thing. And she's like, um, what is wrong? And so girl number two is kind of standing there and their hands are first like this. And she's just like, nothing, <laughs> nothing is wrong. And so she goes, um, I think you're not telling me the truth. What is really wrong with you? And so it kind of changes. Like, you know, her hand maybe moves from here to like right over the heart. You know, it's like very serious. Like, and, and she can't even like say nothing. It's like, it goes to the, I'm not saying anything, but my mouth is still wording it. She goes, kind of does the whole pat my heart because this is really deep in my heart. And, uh, and then this girl, she's like, okay, seriously, you're not telling me the truth. What is going on with this? And so, and so now the girl shows her emotion through her hands by, it kind of moves to her mouth. There's a couple deep breaths. And then this is what I call the wiggly hand. And then that thunderstorm comes and it's like, blue and just rain, you know, it's just like, she just starts sobbing. And see, like, I'll just kind of go here too. Like guys, guys don't cry a whole lot. The guys do cry, not a whole lot. But, but when guys are in the presence of another guy crying, it just gets extremely uncomfortable and awkward. Uh, because like, if I'm guy number two and this is guy number one, he's doing the, you know, that we don't cry like that, but uh, he's crying. Like, it's not, it's just like slowly, back away and then you just like take off running out the door, you know, I'll come back when you're done. Um, but what do girls do? Like when another girl's crying, uh, girl number two, she's like, oh my gosh. And she leaches over and she just gives the big hug. And then the craziest thing happens. I don't know how this works, but like girl number two starts to cry with her. And I don't know how you do that, but she starts to cry and then she kind of pulls her out and she's got her hands on the shoulders. And then what happens next? She goes, you know what we need? Girls night. And there's four essential keys to girls' night. You gotta have Kleenex, a good chick flick, some toenail polish, and ice cream, of course. So they have girls' night together. So guys and girls deal with physical emotion, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, physical pain and suffering and emotional pain and suffering differently. But then there's spiritual pain and suffering, spiritual pain and brokenness in, in, in all of us. Whether we are a guy or a girl have the tendency to respond to this in a couple different ways, and I want you to see this. One, one, one of the ways that we respond to this is, is we try to act like it's not that big of a deal. Um, similar to how the guy deals with physical suffering, we, we try to act like the spiritual pain or this spiritual brokenness in our heart is not that big of a deal. And so we're thinking, oh, okay, like, you know, we're saying to ourselves, I'm not in that bad of shape. Like, it's just a little scrape. And so give me a bandage and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, I'll cover it up with a Band-Aid. Or, or really what we're saying is, you know, I don't feel like my spiritual pain and my spiritual brokenness is that big of a deal. So, so just give me religion. I'll just cover it up with religion. The, the, the problem with this though, and I'll explain a little more in a second. The problem with this is that, that covering something up with a Band-Aid, it, it only slows down or hides 
uh, the wound that is there or hides the pain or hides the brokenness. And when you try to cover up spiritual brokenness or spiritual pain uh, with religion, that only slows down or hides ultimately the imminent death that's coming for a little bit. And so in here tonight, there are many religious people and religious people think they can fix the problem, the spiritual problem that they have by themselves. Just bandage it up and eventually the bleeding will stop. That's many of you here tonight. But listen to this. Religion is a Band-Aid. Jesus is a cure. We don't need a Band-Aid. We need a cure. We need Jesus. There's a second type of uh, response that goes on in this room towards spiritual suffering, uh, spiritual pain. Uh, Another group of people in here, and and your response really reflects the type of response that we see from this crippled guy. Uh, Almost the same thing. You, You try to cover it up. You try to forget about it or at least distract yourself from the spiritual suffering that you're going through. You know that you're crippled, just like this crippled guy in Acts 3. You know that you're crippled, you just don't wanna think about it, so you try to use other things to take your mind off of it or to bring you comfort, like you try to use money or you try to use uh, accomplishment or you try to use your girlfriend or your boyfriend, uh, or or this is a big one, you try to use busyness to take your mind off of the spiritual suffering, the spiritual pain that you're going through and, and to bring comfort in its place. And think about this. Like, I don't know if you realize this. That's the same thing that they do. That's the same approach they take in hospice care. You know what hospice care is, right? Like hospice is when they've accepted their imminent death. And so from this point forward, they just want to go out as comfortably as possible. So like give me a nurse, let her stand by my bed and have a finger on that morphine button and just keep on pushing it whenever I tap the nurse. Push it. Give me more morphine. I want to be comfortable as I die. You're accepting your imminent death. I just want to be comfortable. Hospice is what you do when you know that there's no cure. But I want you to hear me say this tonight. There is a cure. And you don't need hospice. You need healing. You need Jesus. And Peter and John, when they look at this guy, this crippled guy, that's exactly what this crippled guy needed. So this crippled guy, he's he's been lame from birth, it says, was there begging for money, trying to use this money to cover up his problem, and you look at what happens. Verse six, so he's asked for the money, or he's, he's kind of given the, you know, sorry puppy face, I'm asking for money look. In verse six, it says this, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold. In other words, I, I don't have any money, dude. He says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand. The fact that Peter reaches down and touches this guy is crazy. Culturally, that didn't happen. Like, people stayed away. He reaches down, and it says, uh, with his right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles uh, were made strong. Whether, Whether we are religious or not, we all have so much in common spiritually with what this guy had going on physically. This is what we've been talking about since week one of this series, September 4th, when we started Overflow this semester. We've been talking about this. We, we have all been born crippled. As it describes this guy, we've all been lame from birth. We were born, paradoxically, we were born dead. And because of that, we all desperately need Jesus. And you look what takes place. So, so he says, I'll give you Jesus. I don't have money. I'll give you Jesus. Reaches down, picks him up, raises him up. Verse eight, well, at first, verse seven, it says, raising up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So he all of a sudden is healed. 
He was obviously lame in his legs, crippled in his legs. That's fixed. In verse 8 it says, And leaping up he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. Like, look at this guy. This guy's so stinking excited. I mean, I just picture him, you know, he's getting helped up by Peter and he's like kind of standing there Bambi style, you know. And, and he's, he's like, oh my gosh, like my legs. And he starts to kind of, you know, move this leg. And then he kind of does the whole move this leg like that. That's a... <laughs> where the stanky leg came from. But then he's like walking around and he's telling people, he's like tapping people's shoulders. And he's saying, he, he's like, you know, they're walking by, he taps them, he's like, look, look. And they're like, dude, what, what is that? They don't realize it's the crippled guy yet. They're like, what, what is, you're freaking me out, man. And he, so he goes and taps somebody else and he's like, look at my legs, look at my legs. And it says he was walking, but it says he was leaping. So I guess he's going over tapping people and he's going, look what I can do. And he's like walking over here and he's going, look what I can do. And like showing these people, like he can, he can jump and he can leap and he's excited and he's praising God. I mean, this was joy like he had never, ever known. I mean, this guy, money had made him happy. But finally, Jesus gave him joy. Jesus made him free. And let me tell you what I'm praying tonight. I'm praying tonight that that happens for you. I'm praying that tonight you would get this joy. I'm praying that tonight you would get this freedom, that you would get this newness, just like this guy had, that you would get Jesus. I'm praying for that. We have people who've been praying for that all week long for tonight. And so look at what happens next. It says, verse eight, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. So now they're starting to see, hey, wait a second. That guy looks familiar. That's the, that's the guy that was like, couldn't walk. He was crippled. So verse 11 I'm sorry, verse 10, recognize, beautiful gate, asking for alms. Okay, halfway through verse 10. It says, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Um, I'll just tell you this. I'll never forget the first time I got to baptize a guy. It was when I was a college pastor out in Lubbock, West Texas, and I had taken a group of about 50, 55 students down to Panama City Beach, Florida for a mission trip. And uh, <clears throat> spring break, um, just kind of give you a little context here, Panama City Beach, PCB, uh, over spring break, it is, the, uh, it is the largest location for college students to go for spring break to party in the United States, second in the world, I believe, only to Cancun. Um, and it's, it's just crazy, it's, it's chaos. Um, and, uh, and beautiful beaches, tons of these high-rise, you know, um, hotels, and uh, clubs, crazy clubs. The biggest club in the U.S. is there, Club La Vila. Anyways, so we're out on the beach, and uh, this guy, one of my students, had recently become a Christian. He comes to me and says, dude, I really want to get baptized, like, now. And, uh, and so we were, I was talking to him about it, made sure he really understood what baptism was, made sure he understood what the gospel is, uh, because baptism doesn't save you. It's a reflection of what God has already done in your life through Jesus. And so we go out to the beach and we told our whole group, all 50 of them, that we were going to do this. So we walk out there and this, you know, there's already tons of people out there, but nobody was really grouped up like we were. So we were obviously an automatic, like, people saw something was going on. And, uh, and we start off, me and this guy's name, his name was John. Uh, I just had John to the group share his testimony, share his story. And his story, which is just like all of our stories, which is exactly like this crippled man's story, is that I was born lame. I was born crippled. I was born dead. But Jesus healed me. Jesus fixed that. Jesus gave me life. Now, everybody's story is a little bit different, and there's different details, but that's essentially general, broad perspective, all of our stories, if we put our faith in Christ. 
And so he shares that. And after he shares that, I take John out into the water, beautiful water, and, and you just got to picture what was going on. It was funny and also awesome at the same time. Like, people are seeing what's happening. They see us go out in the water. They see, okay, we're not going out there to, like, party and swim like everybody else. So people are starting to watch. And, and actually, at this point, there were people uh, starting to walk over. You got girls walking up in their scandalous bikinis, you know, and they're standing there. And, and, uh, and then you got guys who were, uh, I guess that's just how girls stand tonight. And then you got guys walking up in their bathing suits, and, uh, and, and they're just watching um, right along the edge of the beach. And, and then, actually, you had, because there was a sandbar about 50 yards out, there was a group of guys out here, and there was one guy. He's, uh, he's standing out there, like, kind of had a belly, no joke. He's standing out there like this. And uh, he had one of those trucker hats on, and he had a, a koozie hanging around his neck uh, with a beer in it, and he had a beer in this hand, and uh, he was wearing nothing else but an American flag Speedo uh, right behind where I was baptizing John. And so, like, in, even in some of the pictures, you see this guy back there <laughs> in this American flag Speedo just kind of standing there like, hey, what's going on, everybody? And uh, so, so I take John, and, and I baptize him. And, like, if you're not, if you're not used to what that is, it's kind of weird and it brings questions. What the heck did he just do to that guy? Like, that, they weren't wrestling. <laughs> and he just, like, you know, let him dunk him underwater, and then he brought him back up. Like, that was really weird. And so what happened was all these people that start watching, it was just like what you see in this story. They were, in a sense, astounded. And they had this, like, wonder, what is going on? And, and they start to come. You know, it says they ran to this crippled guy, to Peter and John. They weren't running necessarily, but they started to begin to gravitate towards what was happening here. And I, and I baptize them, they're all cheering. Some of the people that had no idea what's going on, they're, you know, woo, cheering and drinking their beers. And, and then like we, we bring John back up and uh, everybody's hugging him and stuff. And the coolest thing starts to happen. Uh, the, these people start asking my students, what just happened? That was weird. And so my students start to tell them, well, well John, this guy, he just, he became a Christian recently. And so they're like, what is that? But, you know, he'd answer those questions. And then eventually they'd say, okay, but seriously, the whole water thing, what was, what, what in the world was that all about? And so they began to explain, okay, this is like baptism is, they got to start, they, they got to start talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Because baptism is a picture of Jesus dying and then resurrecting, like going under the water, you know, he went down the grave. We don't hold people under the water very long, so they, they come up. It's because Jesus didn't stay in the grave very long, and uh, baptism would really be terrible if he was in the grave for like 10 days. But like, he was only there for three days, so we only keep him down there for a very short while, and then, and then we pull him up. Jesus rose from the dead. So they begin to explain this picture to these people. And, and here's what I want you to see. This is, this is nuts. Baptism was one of the boldest statements a human can make because not only are you saying, like, Jesus healed me, but you are saying when you get baptized that I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And you're saying, I believe in the resurrection of the dead because I believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And so this is what they're telling these people on the beach as they're drinking their beers, and it's awesome. And that's exactly what you see happen in chapter three. Because verse 11, it says, these people ran together to them in the portico, portico called Solomon. It's part of the temple. And, and look at what it says, verse 12. It says, and when Peter saw it, he addressed, he addressed the people, men of Israel, and there were, there were not just men there, there were women there, there were kids there. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked 
for a murderer to be granted to you instead, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Now pause here for a second. If you have a pen and you got a Bible, I want you to underline that. If you're not like opposed to writing your Bible, underline raised from the dead. Underline that, and, and then I want you to go back to chapter three, verse, uh, verse six, and it says, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He says, rise up. So underline that there, rise up. And then you go to verse seven, it says, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up. Underline that. So you got verse 16, raised from the dead, talking about God raising Jesus. Then you go back to verse six and seven, it says, rise up and raised him up, talking about the, the crippled man. And, and here's why I'm having you underline that. Jesus' resurrection has everything to do with this guy's healing. Jesus' resurrection has everything to do with your healing. It, it has everything to do with your salvation. If Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, then you cannot be saved from your sin. If Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, then my preaching up here is foolish. And if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, then anybody in here that says they've put their faith in him and is giving their life to follow him, you should be pitied more than anybody else because your life is gonna be terrible for no reason. And 1 Corinthians 15 says this, reading in verse 14, it says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ uh, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if, he, if, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, your faith is pointless, it's worthless, it's lame, and you are still in your sins. Then those, who also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, then there is no resurrection of the dead and we will all die, physically die, with no hope of anything after this life. However, if Jesus did resurrect from the dead, then that means all of you, every single one of you who are still crippled or who are still dead in your sin, today, can be made alive today. If Jesus did resurrect from the dead, then that means all who put their faith in Christ can live the rest of their lives knowing that all who die in Christ will be resurrected to eternal life just like Jesus was. His resurrection has everything to do with your salvation and your healing. Okay, go, go back to verse 15. So it says, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Verse 16, and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And, and he goes on and he, he goes more in depth, but, but before going any further, like, like see this. First of all, the, these people, they're, they're leaving the temple. They've been there to worship. They're leaving the temple and they see this guy. They start to recognize him as the crippled guy. He'd never been able to walk his whole life. And then they see the evidence. This dude's walking. 
And what happens to the people? They swarm to this guy. They begin, it says, to run to him, giving him an audience, giving Peter and John an audience. And they start to ask all these questions. They're, they're, they're amazed. They're bewildered. They got this wondering going on in their heads. And so they ask, who did this? How did this happen? And Peter and, Peter and John say, Jesus did this. And, and you can just see these people's response. They're like, what? Jesus, dude, Jesus did not do this. Like he's dead. Like they were very close to, you know, this whole crucifixion and stuff. It's just a few days later. So they're like, dude, the, Jesus is dead. You're crazy. He didn't do this. And, and Peter and John, they say, well, false, actually. Uh, God raised him from the dead. And so Jesus did it. This wouldn't have happened without Jesus is what they're saying. Now, before like moving any further, I want, I, you should notice this. This whole situation in Acts 3 doesn't take place on the beach in Panama City Beach, Florida, where all these people have gone for spring break to party their heads off. And it, it, it doesn't happen right outside or right you know, on the main strip in downtown Jerusalem where all the clubs and bars and, 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 and all that is. Where does it happen? Look, verse one, where does it happen? This happens right outside and even inside the temple courts. It happened right outside a place probably pretty similar to this, where tons of very religious people had gathered to worship. And let me tell you something, I don't think that's a coincidence. I mean, just a little proposition here. I think that it's the people inside this room who've come to worship and appear to be religious that need to see this. You and I are this crippled man. And we can die trying to fix it ourselves. And we can die trying to ignore it or cover it up or be distracted from it. And sadly, many of you in this room will die trying to fix your crippledness. Many of you in this room will die trying to cover it up, trying to be comfortable instead, trying to forget about it. So we can die trying to do those things or we can live for eternity in the healing that only the resurrected Jesus can give us. And so we get to chapter four, verse one, it says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, Peter and John, they arrested Peter and John and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. There's our statement for the night, pandemic. First thing I want you to see right off the bat is the pandemic, it's spreading. We're doing this series called Pandemic. The pandemic is spreading. First, you see this crippled guy physically healed. Pandemic, remember, go back to week one, is people were being healed. Blind people were made able to see. Dead people were brought to life. And here you actually see physical healing in this crippled guy, but then you see in chapter four, verse four, more blind people spiritually are being given sight, and more spiritually dead people are being made alive. And now it says the number of men, not counting women and children, is up to 5,000. Just a few days later, went from 3,000 to 5,000 men, which is probably 15 to 20,000 people altogether. This message, the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is powerful. This message is powerful. 
And people change when they come in contact with it. That's the first thing I want you to see from those four verses. Second thing is this. I want you to see what what happens to Peter and John. Verses one through four, what happens? They get arrested, right? They get arrested, and and, and why did they get, get arrested? It says because they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the what? The resurrection. And, and listen, you know, in, my, in my version, the ESV, it says that their message was greatly annoying. Like I'm, I remember being like young and, and uh, eating breakfast with my sister in the morning, who's three years older than me. And like my sister, I love her to death, but there were times where it's just like, she just drives me nuts. And it doesn't matter. Like when somebody's gotten on your nerves, it doesn't matter what you do, what they do. Like they can cough or sneeze or just be sitting there silent. And you're like, oh, you were so annoying. Like I remember sitting there eating breakfast and like, you know, she, we have good manners. She, she has good manners. And she's like eating her cereal. And you can just, you know, hear that tiny little crunch. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so disgusting. <laughs> Go in the other room to eat your cereal. You know, like she gets on my nerves. So that's why I think of like greatly annoying. But it says not just annoying, it was greatly annoying. It says their message was greatly annoying. There were people, there were people who didn't believe in the message of the resurrection of Jesus. And there were people who didn't like the message of the resurrection of Jesus. Yet, people were still being forever changed by the resurrection, or the, the message of the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, this, this early church was annoying, yet powerful. It was annoying, yet powerful. But most of the time, today's church is just annoying. And here's why. Typically, there's a difference in the focal message, the central message of these two examples, the early church and today's church. The early church, the focal message seems to have been maybe different than what many of today's church's focal message is. The focal message, the central message of the early church was the resurrection of Jesus. And you, 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 we'll see this all throughout Acts. Acts 2, Acts 3, 5, Acts 10, Acts 13, Acts 17, 23, 24, 26. Anytime somebody gets up to preach, like they're talking about the resurrection. That was a central message. But the focal message of today's church typically seems to be different than that. Typically seems to be centered around things like moral issues like abortion or what does real marriage look like or homosexuality or war or a bunch of different moral issues. Sometimes it seems to be centered around uh, this religion is not right, this religion is not right, these religions are not right. And in a year like this, an election year, uh, the central message in a lot of churches seems to be focused on which political party that you're supposed to side with. And let me pause for a second, don't hear me wrong. Don't misquote me, don't hear me wrong. These, many of these, if not most of these issues need to be talked about. They need to be talked about. However, when these issues become the focal point of our message, our church goes from being both annoying and powerful to just annoying. Rules and morals, they don't change people. Jesus changes people. And so a message that is only about sin is an incomplete, helpless, hopeless message. But our message is not just about sin. 
It's about sin that's been defeated by a savior. So anyways, Peter and John were arrested. Thrown in prison. And the next day taken to court. Anybody here got in prison and had to go to court for it? I'm just kidding, don't raise your hands. We don't want to know. Some, I saw a couple of people go. But, but listen, this wasn't just any court. This was the Supreme Court. It was called the Sanhedrin. It was like the high, the high court of their day. Same, same court that tried and sentenced Jesus. And, and this is the first officially tried case concerning Jesus since Jesus had been condemned by this very court to death. It's a big deal. So you go to verse seven. They're, they're brought before the court and look what happens. Verse seven, when they had set them when they had set them in the midst, they inquired. So the court is inquiring of, of Peter and John. By what power or by what name did you do this? Verse eight, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you cru- crucified, he goes pointing fingers again, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, underline it, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Like, this, this dialogue basically takes place between the court and Peter and John. And the court says, okay, so how'd you do this? Seriously, we want to know how'd you do this. We're probably going to kill you after this, uh, but we want to know how you did this. And so Peter and John, similar response to the people when they came to them out in the temple court. What do they say? They say, well, uh, actually, we didn't do this. Jesus did this. And the, these, these, like, robed, really powerful, really, really prestigious, smart-looking judges Look at him and say, dude, Jesus did not do this. The guy's dead. We killed him. And Peter says, I know you killed him, but God raised him. Jesus isn't dead. Uh, I mean, he's not dead. This wouldn't have happened unless he was alive. And, and then after that, Peter and John do something absolutely crazy. Now, now pause, okay, before I tell you what they did that was crazy. You got to imagine the situation, okay? You, you, like, put yourself in that courtroom, the Sanhedrin. Put yourself in that room, and, and here's what's going on. So you're, you're in there. Let's just say you're part of the crowd because there was a crowd in there. You, you had Peter and John standing up on this little pedestal where they're standing before the court being judged. Then you had 71 of the most powerful men in Jerusalem uh, sitting uh, all fancied out in their robes and stuff at this little you know, desk. You, you can just picture a courtroom. Just picture that, okay? And then uh, you had people in the courtroom watching for entertainment, for curiosity, whatever the reasons. Tons of people had packed in this room because they knew this was the first case about Jesus being tried since Jesus himself was tried and killed. And so you're sitting in there and you're thinking, okay, at any moment, at any moment, this crowd is going to erupt into an unruly mob and they are going to grab Peter and John. I don't know, maybe you're thinking, I'm gonna grab Peter and John because be part of it, let's do it. We're gonna grab Peter and John, we're gonna take them outside, throw them on the ground, start stoning them to death or kicking them to death, or we're just gonna kill them. Like, like what you're thinking is, at any moment now, this is going to erupt, these guys are gonna be killed right here on the spot. And then Peter and John do something really crazy. They, they say to the court, look, I know you don't like our message that Jesus, the man you tried to kill, well, the man you did kill, and we don't like our message that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And they go on to say, we, we could argue all day about this. But the issue ultimately comes down to this. Did it happen or not? Did Jesus really resurrect from the dead or not? Because 
If he did resurrect from the dead, then, you know, y'all have some issues. If he didn't, then kill us. Did it happen or not? And then Peter, this is the crazy thing. We haven't gotten to that part yet. Then Peter, he says, I have evidence that Jesus is alive. Hold on a second. And he walks off that platform. He's kind of, you know, I don't know if Peter was tall or short or whatever. So maybe he's on his tiptoes looking through the crowd, looking for this crippled guy, formerly crippled guy. He grabs the formerly crippled guy. who's probably like, whoa, dude, I'm not going up there. But he grabs him, strong guy, I guess. And he pulls him up on the platform. He says, exhibit A. Evidence that Jesus is alive. And then he kind of, you know, maybe that is stool. And he just kind of goes and sits down on the stool, crosses his leg, and he says, your turn. And you know what's crazy about this? Like, think about what's going on here. What's so crazy about this is, like, Peter and John's life is on the line. But you, you look at their approach, you look at their response, you look at their argument, and you can tell, you, you, you can see that they're not pleading for their own lives. They're pleading for the lives of the 71 judges. Their argument is not to save themselves, it's to save those judges. It's crazy. So you get to verse 13. Look at the response. It says, now when they, talking about the people of the court, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what should we do with these men? For that, a notable sign, nobody talks like this, I'll just read it how it's written. For that, a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all that inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny. Basically, they say, all right, fellas, what do we do? Because we can't deny this. We're, we're kind of in trouble here. We're about to look really stupid. We need to save face, is what they're saying. Now, 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 think about this. Going back to that image from earlier, you're in that courtroom, and you're just waiting for this place to erupt into a mob, take these guys out and kill them. And Peter and John, they stand up there and say, yeah, well, Jesus did it. They don't back down from their message. You're thinking, at, I mean, at least these guys are going to realize they're going to die. And they're going to say, no, okay, look, we were kidding about the whole Jesus thing. All right, let us go. But they don't. They like bow up to these guys. And in fact, he gets a little, you know, cocky and brings the guy up there and says, exhibit A, your turn, ready to go. Now you're expecting, okay, that's the moment. Every, I mean, the people, are, judges are going to be lifting their little judge skirts up and going over the table to take these guys out and kill them. But what happens? What happens? That doesn't happen. Dead silence. I mean, maybe a little bit of noise from the people in the crowd going, <gasps> but other than that, dead silence. You can hear a pin drop, nobody moves. And then it even says that they were left speechless. Didn't have anything to say. But notice, it. Yes, they were impressed by the boldness and the sharpness of the argument of these two guys, Peter and John. But that's not what left these men speechless. What left them speechless? Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I think the NIV says they were speechless. They saw the evidence. It was the evidence that left them speechless. A few years ago in seminary, uh, I'm still in seminary. I made, made that sound like I was done. I'm not. Um, but I was, I was in this class, and I had to write a paper on the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And, uh, and I remember procrastinating, as usual, sitting in my room, working on my computer really late one night, and just writing this, and trying to answer some of the theories against it, uh, against it really happening. And I had one of these moments, and I hate confessing this. 
I, I, I kind of had one of those breakdown moments. And I don't remember, honestly, if I cried. Probably not, because I never do that. Um, <laughs> I probably maybe did cry a little bit. But I, I, I remember breaking down, and, and it was just, it was one of the most significant moments of my life. Because I've, as I'm looking at all of this evidence, I mean, it was just like, dude. And, and, I, and I stopped writing the paper, which this totally gave away the fact that I had uh, procrastinated because I, I, I opened up an email to my professor and I sent him an email and said, dude, I'm working on this. Uh, and I just have to stop and say, this is nuts. This maybe is the most significant night of my life in my walk with the Lord because I've, I've ne- you know, like I've always said, I believed in the resurrection, but one, never realized how significant it is for me and my faith and my healing, my salvation. But, but two, like this is maybe the first time in my life that I can say, it happened. And I want you all so badly to believe this. I want you all so badly to believe that, that Jesus died and then rose again. Not just like ghost or spirit, like physically rose again. Mark Driscoll, he says this. This isn't just a fact. This isn't an archaeological dig. This isn't an interesting anecdote. This is everything. The resurrection of Jesus is everything. Everything in this book, it rises on the resurrection or it comes tumbling quickly down on the resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you are crazy. You are crazy not to fall to your knees tonight and trust in him with everything you've got. And I believe that with all the evidence that there is, the burden of proof, proof ultimately is not on the believer. Ultimately, the burden of proof is on the critic. Just like Peter, he said, exhibit A, you go. And they were speechless. The burden of proof was on the critics. And I think the same is true about the resurrection. So I want to give you, as we close out here, still got a little ways to go, but I, I want to give you reasons why you should believe Jesus rose from the dead. Seven things that happened after the resurrection that give you reasons you should believe it's true. This is circumstantial evidence. Like, in other words, unless Jesus, come on, I mean, if you want to do this, like, unless Jesus just shows up all of a sudden, um, you know, he's, I can't just say, okay, here's Jesus. He rose from the dead, all right? Um, but I'm gonna give you circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence, I'm not a lawyer, but it means like it's stuff surrounding the event or surrounding the thing that like infers, points to the fact that it happened, okay? So circumstantial evidence. Number one is this. Women discovered the empty tomb. Women discovered the empty tomb. Now, now let me explain why you, to you why this is evidence. Women had almost no status in society at this point. And, and part of that was they were just not seen very high at all, uh, they were hardly recognized in some cases as humans. Uh, they, had no, they, they were not allowed to testify in court. So the fact that women were the first to discover the empty tomb, if someone was going to fabricate a story about a resurrection, the women would not be the first to discover the empty tomb. Uh, you would think that at least they would have a couple men go and discover the tomb so that these men could testify for themselves in front of the court that they had discovered this empty tomb. Second thing, which, which let me just back up. I mean, based on that right there, like that's huge. Uh, it's, that's, that's huge. Number two, before Jesus' resurrection, the disciples were cowards. They were scared of everything. I mean, you, you think, why did he pick these people to be his warriors? They're, they're whips. But you see that the moment that they met him, after, like, resurrected Jesus, met him, something changes. Peter's the best example of this. Just a few days before, Peter's denying Jesus because he's scared for his life. He's scared he's gonna be arrested, beaten, and killed. But once Peter meets resurrected Jesus, what happens? Dude, he goes crazy. I mean, we're we're watching him here in Acts 3 and 4. He goes nuts. He starts preaching boldly. He's like, I don't care. You crucified him. He's standing in front of the people that can kill him, saying, you killed this guy. 
Y'all should be the ones being on trial. I mean, he gets bold all of a sudden, and eventually what you see is Peter uh, ends up dying for his faith in Jesus. And, and they go to crucify him, and he says, no, don't crucify me the same way you crucified Jesus. I'm not worthy of his kind of death. Crucify me upside down. So he's crucified upside down. And you see with the other believers, many of the other disciples, most of the other disciples also were martyrs for their faith. And you see the church, the early church, these early Christians who had encountered Jesus, uh, he, they were willing to suffer physical Emotional persecution for their faith. Moving on. Number three, worship changed. Uh, these Jews, these Jews who were rooted in tradition and religion stopped worshiping on their normal day of worship, the Sabbath, which was Saturday for them. They began to worship on Sunday. Uh, there's, there's early evidence, or there's evidence that early on in this, they, they switched from worshiping on Saturday to Sunday. Now, this is a huge deal because, one, we're talking about Jews who were rooted in religion, rooted in tradition. And the best way I can explain to you that's a big deal is you think about it, if you've been around the church uh, for any significant part of your life, you know how big of a deal it is to, to change traditions when you have old people in a church. Uh, if you want to go from hymns to that crazy old rock music, people lose their top. And, they, and, they, and I mean, church is split on this, Right? Uh, or you want to change the color of the carpet, churches split over things like that. There's arguments, heads butt, but we're not talking about those little things. We're talking about changing one of the central pieces of their lifestyle. The day that they worshiped on, they moved to Sunday. You also see that they begin to worship Jesus as God. Their worship goes from being centered around like God, the Father, God that came down on Mount Sinai to like, I mean, it's not changing from worshiping him, but now they're recognizing that Jesus is that same God. And so the worship is now centered around Jesus. Fourth thing, Jesus' family uh, worshiped him as God. Now that's crazy because prior to his death, his brothers, James and Jude, you recognize those names from books in the Bible, thought he was stinking crazy. Like many of you, uh, you, you have that crazy sibling or that crazy uncle or cousin, crazy Uncle Joe, and, and like family reunions and stuff, like if he even shows up, you just know it's crazy Uncle Joe, you might talk to him to get a good laugh, but it's crazy Uncle Joe. That was Jesus and his family. James and Jude saw Jesus as crazy brother Jesus. But what you see happen is after they encounter the resurrected Jesus, they begin to worship their brother. And they don't stop there. They even wrote books of the Bible, books that are in the Bible, James and Jude. That's what they're called. Not about James and Jude. They're about their brother Jesus. And they were leaders in the church. They were pastors. Number five, Jesus' enemies worshiped him. Saul Acts chapter nine, we'll see this in, in a few weeks. Like this dude was killing Christians. That was his life goal. He was the Jew of all Jews, enemy of Jesus, enemy of everything that Jesus stood for. And when he meets the resurrected Jesus, what happens? Well, he gets a new name, cool name, Paul. And he goes from hating Jesus to worshiping Jesus and ultimately becoming one of the greatest leaders, if not the greatest leader, the, the central piece that God uses to take the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles. Number six, the church exploded. This is where this whole series comes from. You see this pandemic. Not just Jerusalem gets affected by this, but the entire world gets affected by this and is still being affected by this. But this early church, it blew up. Number seven, a body was never found. Seventh reason that you should believe in the resurrection of Jesus is a body was never found. In fact, no one today is really sure which tomb was his, and that's a big deal, and here's why. Typically, when religious leaders die, their, their tomb becomes a shrine. I mean, think about this. Like, Muhammad, tomb is definitely a shrine. Buddha, there's shrines to Buddha. Other religions, there's shrines. People pray 
towards these tombs where there's a dead body inside that tomb. People gather there. They worship there. They leave flowers there. They leave gifts there. But there's no history that shows that this ever happened at Jesus' tomb. Why? I'm just going to throw a wild guess out there. He wasn't there. Jesus wasn't dead. And so that tomb didn't matter anymore. We don't pray to the tomb. That would be stupid. He's not there. But, but going further than that, so, so what happened? If, if the body was never discovered, if it was never found, what happened? There's a few theories here. Some say the disciples stole Jesus' body. This is theft, theft theory number one. Some say the disciples stole the body. But scripture shows us a couple things about this. One, and, and actually history shows us a couple things about this. One is the, the disciples, they didn't even know that Jesus was supposed to rise from the dead. So why would they try to create this hoax uh, and steal Jesus' body to show that he rise from the dead when they didn't realize that was what, what was supposed to happen until they met him, resurrected Jesus? Two, this tomb was sealed and guarded by this heavy, hardcore Roman security bunch. Who says bunch? This security group of guys, security guys. And you see how distraught these guys were emotionally. And two, there were only like a couple days for them to plan what would have had to have been an elaborate plan to go in and steal this body. Three, why would these disciples, when you see that most of them died for their faith, like many people die for lies that they think are true, but nobody dies for a lie that they know is a lie. So there's that theory, which is hard to stand by. Second theory is some say enemies of Jesus stole his body. So like not the disciples, but maybe the Jewish leaders. But there's problems with this. The Jewish leaders, they wanted the disciples to stop talking about the resurrected Jesus. So if they had the body why would they not take the body and parade it through the streets and say, fellas, Jesus is dead. Stop talking about him. People, stop believing this. He's dead. If they had stolen the body, why would they have not taken it and paraded it? But here's the thing. Even if there was a stolen body, the stolen body theory still doesn't explain the appearances that Jesus made later on. Now we'll get to that in a second. Number three, some say the women went to the wrong tomb because it was still dark in the morning. Uh, supposedly there are many tombs over there, which there's differing thoughts on that. Dark in the morning, maybe other tombs around, and uh, you know, girls, you know, we talked about the whole crying thing earlier. Like maybe they've been crying so much, you know when you cry a lot, uh, your eyes get foggy, and so they just went to the wrong place. Talk about a sexist theory, like blame it on the women here. Uh, and, I, and I think this is just stupid, but there's a lot of problems with this. Uh, if, if the two Marys went to the wrong tomb, then the angel of the Lord went to the wrong tomb that uh, they met when they got there. If the two Marys and the angel of the Lord went to the wrong tomb, then Peter and John also ran to the wrong tomb. We see this in Luke. Mary and Martha go tell Peter and John. They take off running. John in his gospel actually says, includes the detail that he ran faster than Peter and got there. Guys are always competitive. So if, if the two Marys went to the wrong tomb, then Peter and John also went to the wrong tomb. If the two Marys went to the wrong tomb, then the Jewish authorities, which I, I guarantee you were going and checking, okay, is this tomb really empty? Then that means they went to the wrong tomb as well. And if, if the two Marys, if the angel of the Lord, if Peter and John, if the Jewish authorities, if they all went to the wrong tomb, then that means that Joseph of Arimathea, who was the guy who owned the tomb, also went to the wrong tomb. That's the wrong tomb theory. You can believe that if you want. Fourth, some say Jesus didn't really die on the cross. 
Some say he just swooned. This isn't like, oh, girls, I'm sorry, this guy's so hot, I'm swooning. That's not that kind of swoon. It's like swooning like, you know, you, you go into a coma or you pass out for a period of time. That's the swoon thing. So he just, they're saying he just swooned, and while he was in the tomb, uh, he, was, he was revived, and then he broke himself out. Well, okay, here's some problems with this. One, Jesus barely even made it to the cross alive. I mean, the fact that he made it to the cross alive uh, is crazy. There's, there's no way he made it off the cross alive. And you see this in the fact that uh, after he died, uh, these men go to Pilate and say, dude, Jesus is dead. And Pilate's like, what, already? That's crazy. And the reason he responds like that is because typically it took about two days for somebody to die by way of crucifixion, uh, which is essentially dying through asphyxiation. Drowning in your own, I think, carbon dioxide or oxygen, one of the two, carbon dioxide. Anyways, so like, it typically took two days. How long was Jesus on the cross? A few hours. Not anywhere close to that. And the reason that he was on the cross for such a short time is because he barely made it to the cross alive. But you also, I mean, you gotta consider the fact that Romans were experts in crucifixion. This wasn't their first time to crucify somebody. This was a common practice. And they also had a test to, to make sure somebody was dead. This is where that spear, that sword came and the thrusting it into his side. Scientifically, this is explained by when you, when you die, uh, I'm gonna do my best here. When you die, there's a sack that's around your heart that fills with water, I think. I can't remember the technical terminology, but uh, when you ta- if you were to take a sword, don't try this. If you were to take a sword and, and like stab a, you know, a dead person in their heart area, it would bust that sack and this water would come out first and then blood, which is what you see happen. So there was this test. They were dead. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the guys who helped bury Jesus, never showed any doubt that Jesus was dead when they were burying him. And if Jesus had survived, he was wrapped in like 75 plus pounds of linen uh, in preparing his body for burial, spices on top of that. Okay, so like wrapped like this, try to bust out of that. And thrown in this tomb, gently set in this tomb. Then you have this stone that was sealed. Then you had this hardcore like Roman guards outside of it. And then, uh, and then so what they're saying is he was in there for three days uh, without water, without food, with all of these crazy wounds uh, that he had suffered before even being on the cross. And then the wounds from the cross. And somehow he bust out of this 75 plus pounds of linen, and then from the inside, he opens the tomb, almost fell off stage, he opens the tomb, and then he sneaks past all these Roman guards that know that if he escapes, they die. Because if you were, if you were a guard, if you were a Roman guard, you see this in, in, we'll see this actually, Acts chapter 12 when we study this. If you were a Roman guard and you were guarding somebody in prison, if they escaped, then you then had to pay their penalty. And so they knew that their life depended on him staying in that tomb. So Jesus, under all of that, would have had to escape. And if he had survived and escaped the tomb, then surely, surely, the wounds he had sustained before going to the cross would still be showing. And in these encounters that people had, you never see that. Like, in fact, they didn't even recognize him because they were like, oh my gosh, you're Jesus? Like, it's crazy. But, but then, I mean, he, okay, so like, it's doubtful that his followers would have been excited about following him to the point of death and worshiping him if he's walking around and skin hanging off and bloody and still looking like he almost died on the cross or just died on the cross. That's the swoon theory. Last one is this. Some say all the people who claim they saw Jesus after his resurrection were hallucinating. This is, this, this is a legit, this, I mean, this is one of the theories. Records show that Jesus appeared to over 500 people after his resurrection. Now, scientifically and psychologically, there's a lot of problems with this theory. Short version of those problems, hallucinations tend to be very individualistic. 
Uh, they're, they're based off of a few things. One is an individual's past experiences, uh, two, the individual's current emotions, and three, what the individual is hoping will happen. And so considering that there are recorded to be over 500 people who saw Jesus after his resurrection, uh, the idea that they all had the exact same hallucination, thinking about 500 people, okay? Think about how diverse this room is right here. Uh, we all have had way different past experiences from each other. I promise you, uh, we are all going through different emotions right now. And I know that we all have different future hopes and desires. So for all of us in this room to have uh, the same hallucination, scientifically, psychologically, is, is a challenge. But even if 500 people were hallucinating, this still doesn't tell us why the tomb was empty. So as John Stott put it, he said this, Jesus was rejected, Jesus resurrected, Jesus is reigning. There's no other explanation. History trumps ideology. Reality trumps reason. And his resurrection requires for you to respond. I wanna show you one more thing. Go back to Acts chapter four, verse 11. Listen to what, what, what Peter says. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The picture that he's giving is this. All of you in this room are builders. We're all builders. And we're building our lives with these bricks or with these stones. And we build, we, the, the way that we choose these stones, we choose these stones to build our lives with based off of what we think, which stones we think can, can give us the best chance for enjoying our life, the best chance for getting the most out of our life. And so the bricks that we use are, are bricks like um, school. This is why you're going to school. You're using that brick. Some of you, it's, it's a job. You're, you're in a full-time job now or, or you're a part-time job in it, hoping to get to a full-time job. That's a brick. Some of you, your brick is your relationship. Some of you, your brick is uh, future family and kids. And some of you, your brick is your car. I mean, there's a list of all these things that could be bricks. But, but you're going down the line, you're looking at these bricks, and you're saying, okay, I, I, I do want that one, so I'll build my life with that. I don't want that one, so I won't build my life with that. And what he's saying here to these people and essentially to us is this. Jesus is the cornerstone or the capstone. He's, he's that type of brick, which I'll explain in a second, that we have looked at and we've said no. And if you know anything about architecture, building, a cornerstone or a capstone is absolutely necessary to the building. If you don't have a capstone, you've seen those pictures of these ancient arches built with these bricks, built with these stones. And in the middle, there's a stone that's kind of shaped like that. That's the capstone. What happens if you reach up there and remove that capstone? The whole thing falls apart. And he's saying, look, so many of you are rejecting the capstone. You're building your life with these bricks, and they're good bricks, but all those bricks are gonna fall in on themselves until you have a capstone. And then he goes on in verse 12, and he says, and there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let me tell you what I've been praying all week and praying specifically for tonight, is that you would believe with all of your heart that Jesus resurrected from the dead. His resurrection has everything to do with your healing and your salvation. If he didn't rise from the dead, you can't be saved. You can't be healed. There's no hope of eternal life. Just death after death. 
My prayer for you tonight is I know for a fact that there are people in here who are rejecting the capstone. You're building your life with this stuff, but I'm just telling you it's gonna fall in on itself until you put the capstone in place. Tonight is the night to do that. 